Alright, well, Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, we're in a series in the book of Nehemiah. It's been several weeks here, and we're in chapter 8 today. We've been seeing um, that Nehemiah was used mightily by God in his day to lead the people to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem uh, a little over a hundred years after uh, the Babylonian captivity. And however, God was not interested in just building the walls. God was also building and rebuilding, so to speak, His people. Um, Israel had been chosen by God to be a people for himself. They had been scattered. He was bringing them back together um, over the course of this time period. And they were chosen to exist for God's glory and to fulfill his mission on the earth, to make much of him and to be a light unto the nations. And in the New Testament, as we know, Israel did not fulfill that role as they should. The Messiah comes along, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. He's born in the New Testament. And He has come, and He is the light of the world. He does perfectly fulfill God's mission. And He comes to save Israel and, and, and to save Gentiles and to save anyone who will turn from their sin and embrace Him as Lord and Savior and, and come under His reign, under His rule, as Lord and as Savior. And so today, we know the church is the chosen people of God. We are God's chosen people. And And God is building His church. Jesus said, I've come to build my church. And so if you're here today and you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you're part of His church and that you're part of the church that Jesus is building. And this morning, we're going to see as we kind of transition here in Nehemiah in chapter 8 that the main tool God uses by the power of His Spirit to build His people is His Word. Uh, God's Word is central to our spiritual growth and the growth of the body. And God's Word is what's supposed to shape our hearts and our mind as individuals and collectively our culture as a church. Do you understand that? Um, our church culture, and even the way we relate to one another, the way we do things, the way we govern ourselves, everything, not just your, our personal lives, but everything, even corporately in our culture as a church, is to be shaped by the Word of God. And we begin to see that taking place um, with the Jews at this time period in Nehemiah, as we're going we're to see them get into the Word, and to see the Word begin to affect them, and to begin to affect their culture and the things they do. A lot of things can shape and mold a church's culture. Some churches have a legalistic culture. They make style and decisions of Christian liberty um, the main issues. They, they take great, uh, matters that aren't black and white and they make them ultimate. They make matters of personal preference or matters of Christian conscience and they make them ultimate, right? They make them primary issues and they become, can become very legalistic sometimes. If you're not like me or you don't agree with me, then you're not with God, right? And so it becomes a very legalistic culture where everybody's kind of looking over their shoulders. Some churches have a very liberal culture. Anything goes. Well, we're not going to talk about sin because we don't want to offend anybody. We're not going to. There's nothing's black and white. Everything's gray. And some churches have a very consumeristic culture. It's all about me. Do I like the music? Do I like the preaching? Do I like the venue? Am I pleased? Are my preferences being met? I'm a consumer. Do I, do I want the good or do I not want the good? Some churches are very having much an insider culture. It's all about us and what I what we want. We don't think about the community around us. It's very insider focused and, so to speak, building the church that we want and that we love as opposed to whatever God wants and whatever's effective missionally. Some churches have a very traditional culture. We do it that way and we've always done it. And so anything that's not the way we've always done it, something must be wrong with it. And the elements of these things can be in every church. There's more. That's just ones that just came to mind this week as I was studying this. We need to be a church that has a gospel culture. 
and that has a word-based culture. In other words, we allow the defining ethic of our culture to be this book and allow God's Word to shape that. And we allow the attitudes and the way we approach one another and the way we do relationships and all those sort of things, the spirit of our church to be shaped by the gospel. Not by legalism, not by liberalism, not by traditionalism, not by consumerism, but by the gospel and what it would have us to believe and what it would have us to behold to. So that means... We need a church that reflects those truths. A culture that is forgiving yet firm. A culture that is full of grace yet truth. A culture that stresses community and mission. A culture that prods us to worship God and doesn't enable us to worship ourselves. right? Those kind of things are the kind of things that are promoted in a church that allows the Word of God to shape its culture. Maybe you're familiar with the show. It's really popular these days. Christy really likes it. Um, Fixer Upper. You've probably seen that show. Very, very popular. And they'll take this house on a piece of property and somebody give them a budget and they'll say, we've got $100,000 and they'll go buy this. I'm exaggerating probably, but they'll buy this house for $10,000 and when they're done with it, it's worth $400,000, right? And it, it, it was a barn and now it's a mansion. You know, all these incredible things that they can do. And you're like, I would have just torn that house down or I just wouldn't have bought that house. And they turn it into like this uh, palatial kind of place. And it's because they go in there and they gut it out and they change things and they rip up carpet and they'll do, they'll, 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 I mean, they'll just knock walls out. They'll do all kinds of stuff and completely kind of regut that and remake it into something else. And in a sense, that's the way God's Word works in our lives and in our churches is God uses His words to tear things down, to rebuild things, to knock walls down, to do whatever He needs to do to mold us and make us both individually and corporately into the people He wants us to be, right? So God's the fixer-upper and this is His hammer uh, and his nails and all those sort of things. This is what he's building his people with. And so, in Nehemiah 8, the walls have been rebuilt at this point. Just to kind of catch up, because we're going to skip a chapter. The walls have been rebuilt. They've withstood the opposition. They've resolved the internal conflicts. In chapter 7, you have a long list of sort of a roll call of how the city was repopulated. And so you've got the list of all the people that were being brought, had been brought back um, to Jerusalem. And so it's this long list of names that we look at and kind of go, what's this about? Well, it was very important to them, right? And so this is, this is their people. This is the people that are, that are coming back into the city and listed by by, 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 their, by their clans, by name to name. Um, and you just see that long list of names there in chapter 7. And then when you get to chapter 8, you see at the end of chapter 7 um, that the seventh month had come. The people of Israel were in their towns. And you get to chapter 8. And some people, you know, people differ on how much time had passed here. Some think this is was right, some think it's right within the flow of that calendar year. Some think this could have been several years later. Either way, what we know is in a sense, sort of a revival of the word is about to happen among the people. So look with me. We're going to read all of this chapter of um, Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to read the funny names too. So hang with me and forgive me for the ones I Butcher, all right? Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of ears of excuse me, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that day that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, and Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand. 
and Padaiah, Mishael, Machijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatheah, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Ezariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Verse 13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths from the days of Jeshua the son of, for from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Alright. Big chunk of Scripture there. And as we read this, what we see is Ezra, to understand the context, has been faithfully teaching the Word for several years. This is the first time these people heard heard the law opened up. Ezra had been there for several years, at least we know of, 12, that he had been there and he had been teaching and teaching and teaching, but it hadn't really caught on yet, more than likely. And some believe that maybe this whole gathering here was designed to kind of win over the people that still hadn't recommitted themselves to the law. And so now the walls are rebuilt, the people are feeling safe, things are going good, and the people are asking now, you see this, they asked for the word to be brought and for them to gather together, not at the temple, but they gather out in this open area, and everybody that can understand the word are brought to hear it. And it says they all gathered as one man. For centuries, the people of God had been gathering for the purpose of being taught the Word of God. You have to understand that. When we wonder, like, why do we do what we do, right? Why do we gather on Sunday mornings and... And why do we open up the Bible and why do we teach from it? 
We say, well, church history, we've always done that. Well, yeah, you can go all the way back to the Old Testament and they're doing that. As long as God's had a people, right, they've been opening up His book. And we can go way back and we can see God's people gathering, God's Word being opened, what they had of God's Word, and it being proclaimed to people. That is a, a tradition that is thousands of years rich with history, right? And so we have to be very careful. When people come along and they think of new ways to grow and, uh, and to mature and to... Um, and to edify the church that don't have to do with opening God's Word and teaching God's Word to God's people. And there's two big themes that we see here as you run, read through this that I see here that just kind of, as I studied this text, it jumped out to me. And that is the teaching of the Word and the applying of the Word. Alright, very simple. And you see the Word being taught and you see the Word being applied. And kind of on the first part of the section of this Scripture, I want to focus on the teaching and then we'll come back and focus on the, on the application part of it. So the first thing we see here is the Word being taught. And we see in verse 2 that everyone needs to be taught the Word. They brought everyone that could understand, it says, together. Men and women, everyone came together. Everyone who was old enough to hear and comprehend, they came together to hear God's Word. It wasn't just for the select few. It wasn't just for the educated. It wasn't just for the men. It was for everybody. And everyone needs to be taught the Word of God. In every age, every race, every gender, we all need the Word, right? And when kids can understand it, they need to hear the Word, right? And we need to be sowing things that they can understand to get to the place where they can understand it more and more fully. Because everyone needs to be taught the Word. And this went on, this teaching of the Word with everybody there went on from early morning until midday, Right? And our question is, what did they do about child care? You know, yeah, I don't know. But from early morning to midday for hours, that was just the reading. They get up and they just read for hours upon hours from the law. And did you notice they're standing when it happens? We're not told they ever sat down. They stood up the entire night. So why are they standing? Well, they were standing out of respect and honor for God's Word. Now, that's a prescriptive thing. That's a descriptive thing, not a prescriptive thing. And what I mean by that is, nowhere in the Scriptures does it command us to stand every time the Bible's quoted. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing that. There's not. But we're not commanded to do it. But here they did it. It was spontaneous. It wasn't coerced. It was spontaneous from within their heart. They were at such a place that when the Word was opened, they stood up out of reverence for God's Word to be taught God's Word. And what we see in verse 3 is that everyone, we all, as God's people, should desire to be taught God's Word. Like I said, they stood for hours, but not only that, the Bible says that they were attentive to the law. Their ears were attentive to the law. In other words, they were paying attention. They were hungry for what was being said. For you to get the most out of God's Word, you have to bring your A-game to hear God's Word, right? So that means whether I'm at home or wherever and I'm opening up the Word of God to read it for myself or whether I'm at church and I'm in small group or whether I'm in here and I'm in worship and the Word of God's being opened up, it's being read, it's being taught from, I'm, the Word always brings its A-game. You know what I mean by that? It's always ready. It's always got its A game. It, 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 it never takes a day off. It's always there. And it's always ready to teach. And the Holy Spirit is always bringing His A game. And He's always ready. And He's always able to teach. And we, as the people, have to always bring our A game whenever we're going to come to the Word. And we need to be ready. And we need to be have attentive ears and be ready to be taught. Whether that's open the Word in private or gathering around the Word corporately. And it's kind of like this, you know. When I was in school, there were classes I didn't like and classes I did like. Did you have those kind of classes? There were classes I hated and classes I loved. You know the classes I learned the most in? The ones I loved. And you know why? Because I put more into those classes. Because you get out of it what you put into it. And that's generally how it works with the Bible too. A lot of times we get out of it what we put into it. You say, well, I don't, I don't really get anything out of the Bible when I read it. I bet you don't read it very much. Just a wild hunch. 
Right? And so we get out of it what we put into it. And so the more we put into it, and the more time we spend in it, and the more seriously we take it, whether that's corporately when we're together or individually when we're by ourselves, the more we get out of it. And then we also see here in verses 5 and 6 that the reading and the teaching of the Word was central in worship. It was central in worship. When Ezra stands to read the Word, right, it's a worship service. Do you see that that's what's happening? I mean, he's he's praising God. I mean, listen, we... We don't just simply gather, and they didn't just simply gather for fellowship. And we don't gather for entertainment. And we don't just gather to have a good time together. And all those, having a good time together in fellowship, those are good things. But they gathered to hear the Word. And at the end of the day, when we gather together, we gather for fellowship and to love one another and do all those things. But it all happens around the Word of God. And at the end of the day, we can do a lot of things and not do a lot of things. But if we fail to gather around the proclamation of the teaching of God's Word, we fail to worship. We do not, wor- we do not have a corporate worship service uh, on a regular basis if, we don't, if the Word of God is absent from that. All right, And so, here we see it's central to what's going on. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, it says. And how do the people answer? They say, Amen, Amen. I'm in verses 5 and 6. And they agreed and they lifted up their hands, it says. Right? They lifted up their hands. They bowed their heads and they worshipped with their face to the ground. Anybody nervous yet? Right? Anybody would have been uncomfortable in this service yet? They're very expressive in their worship. Did you notice that? They didn't just sit there. Listen, and I'm not here to tell you how to worship. That's not the point. My point is, we need to catch on to the fact that the Word's being taught for hours, right? It's about to be taught for hours. But they're very expressive in their worship. My point is this. You can have solid Bible teaching and expressive, vibrant worship. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. They go together. Right? And sometimes we get it in our head that a church can even be a rich Bible teaching church and the worship's got to be dead and cold. Or a church can be have hot worship and be great and the Word has to be compromised and shallow. You can have both. They had both. They had both. They ain't even broke out music yet. Amen. You see that? They ain't even broke out music. They don't even have the guitar out yet. They don't even have the piano out yet. They hadn't sung a hymn. They hadn't sung a praise song. And they're already worshiping. They're raising hands. They're falling on the ground. I mean... They, this doesn't look like a Baptist meeting of most of the Baptist meetings I've been in. I hate to break it to you. And I can promise you this. This isn't wrong. Right? So, expressive worship's okay. It's okay. It's okay to do that. And so, it goes with the teaching of the Word. Alright? Notice they had even built a platform made for the purpose of reading of the Word. They, they planned ahead for this. Did you catch that? Because this is worship. And so they had actually planned ahead and they had built a platform so all the, and then they had people flanked on each side, right? Maybe we ought to start doing this. They had seven on this side, thirteen on this side. And as he taught, they go out and they're helping the people understand, right? And my point in all that is, boy, there is planning going on here. And they are taking this very... Because this is worship. They are putting a lot of energy, a lot of time, and a lot of effort into what's going on because it's about the preaching and the teaching of God's Word and the worshiping of the one and only God. Now... Here's the big thing about the teaching of the Word that we see here in this passage. They aimed, and as we should, they aimed to get people to understand the teaching. That is a big theme in the first... They wanted people to understand it. There were people there, as I just mentioned, to help make sure that the people understood the law that are going around and and, and giving them the sense of the reading. And and here's what's going on. First of all, there's translations issues probably. Because you got to remember, these people had been captive in other places. Some of them were a little rough on their Hebrew. Just to be honest with you. And so they're having, there's translation issues and they're having to translate things for people. There's also cultural issues. It's been years since they have 
had a thriving Jerusalem. It's been, I mean, the, the, the culture had just been torn apart of the people of God. And they're being brought back together and to, to reinstitute temple worship, to rebuild the walls. And, and they had been besieged by Babylonian culture and Persian culture. So there's all kinds of cultural issues that when they open up something and they begin to try to understand what something means, that had been written many, 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 many years before and from a kind of a different culture that made it hard to understand. And so they need people to explain things to them. There are also interpretation issues. What does this mean? It says this. What does that mean? How does it apply? And so I think all those things are likely at work as they're going around, they're helping people, and they're giving the sense, it says, as, as when it's read. Because to be able to get the most out of God's Word, you have to understand God's Word. You have to understand God's Word. In our day... We are taking an ancient writing, ancient writings from another language and another culture, and we believe that it's the single greatest tool that God uses to change lives, that the Holy Spirit uses to impact lives and to build His church and lead people to Christ and to edify people in Christ, all those sort of things. We think this is the single greatest tool. It was written thousands of years ago in another language and another culture. It is important that we help people understand it. It's important that we help people understand it. That's why, that's for practical examples. We use a contemporary but solid translation, right? And, and our Bible, you know, there's all kinds of translations out there. So, Josh, why do you use the translation that you use? Well, I, there's a few, a few good ones. I mean, there's a lot of good ones. I don't, it's, you know, I'm not dogmatic about that, but I use an English Standard Version because it is both contemporary so that you can understand it when I read it, and at the same time, it is tied to the original text in a word-for-word sort of matter. So it, it, the people that translated this cared a lot about what the Greek and Hebrew said and what they intended for it to say. And those two things are both important. Okay, you can really be tied to the one over here and not care about how to communicate it into the English language and that's a problem or care so much about the English language that you forget about the Hebrew and Greek and that's what God inspired and that's a problem. you got to have both and you can have both. And there's good translations that have both. That's why we use that translation because we want people to understand the word both in its literal meaning and how it applies to your life today. And so and when we gather together and you know this, we don't just read the word and walk out. You know I don't do that. We teach it and we try to explain it because we want you to understand it. We have small groups where people discuss and you can ask questions and people talk about the Bible. We put our sermons online so if you miss one you can go hear it or if you didn't think you heard something right you can go back and listen to it or whatever, right? Because we want people to understand the Bible because it is right there at the center of what we're doing and why we're gathering together is we're teaching the Bible. But we just don't want people to understand it. We teach and they taught toward obedience. Look at verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, we see that the people were instructed that it was a holy day to the Lord. This was the first day of the seventh month. It was the Feast of Trumpets. They were approaching the Feast of Booths. This was a time of rejoicing. They would come back to their morning in chapter 9 after the Feast, what we're going to be in next week, right? That's the morning chapter. And they're going to come back and they're going to practice mourning and repenting and all that. But they're told here, do not mourn, but rejoice. Now the Word had brought conviction. It had brought conviction. And therefore, it brought sorrow over their sin. And there's a time to mourn over our sin and a time to repent. And the Word brings that about. And from all appearances, these people were repentant at this point in time. And there's also a time to rejoice in God's forgiveness and in God's faithfulness and in God's grace and God's mercy. And here the people are called to obey God by rejoicing in God. They could come back to mourning after the festival. This was appointed as a time of rejoicing. This was a holy day that they, that they were supposed to rejoice in. That was the spirit of what had been read, whatever text they had read, and the spirit of the festival was a time of rejoicing. And we see here that the people are being told to obey God despite how they feel. They felt like mourning. They felt like being sad. 
They felt like, man, just getting alone for a long period of time and weeping over their sin, but they're told to go have a feast and rejoice. Because obedience trumps feelings every time. Say, so how in the world could somebody... That, didn't fit, that doesn't seem very nice that they told them to do that. Because obeying God trumps how we feel at that point or another about God or about anything else. Feelings are never an excuse to disobey God. And if they choose to disobey, they're just heaping more sin and transgression on top of what they've already mourning over. Right? They're mourning because they're sinful and because they've been breaking God's law. And so then if they don't do what they're supposed to do now, then they're still adding more sin on top of it because God had appointed this day as a day of rejoicing, as a festival. So they're going to come back later in chapter 9 and more. Now, God's Word is not simply meant to be learned but obeyed. And that wasn't just the case in the Old Testament. It was the case in the New Testament. Now think about this. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus says the Great Commission is this. This is written on like every church has it somewhere, right? Go into all the world and make disciples, right? Teaching them to obey. Teaching them to obey. It is within the Great Commission of the church that we don't just teach them, we teach them to obey. We teach towards obedience, right? It's like with children. Sometimes you have to make them obey. Especially when they're young. There gets an age where you can't make them obey. I know that, right? And so, right now, if I need to, I can pick Cannon up and take him where I told him to go and set him there, right? I can drag him there, whatever. Because I want him to obey. I want him to learn to obey. Because I don't want Cannon just to learn that the stove is hot. I want him to not touch the hot stove. And that's the difference. We're not just wanting people to learn about God or that God is good or that this or that. We want them to appropriate that truth into their life. We want them to obey. And that's what we see here. They're saying, hey, you obey. This is a season for rejoicing. You go rejoice. Jesus said, when you make disciples, you teach them to obey. And so we model obedience. We hold them accountable to obedience. We encourage obedience. Because that's the whole point of the teaching. It's not about just knowledge. And we also teach towards joy. Look at verses 10 and through 12. He says, The joy of the Lord will be your strength. God would protect them and provide for them, as one commentator said, in spite of their sin. Even though they're mourning over their sin, they need to focus on God's protection and, and, and God rejoicing over them in a sense. God is for them. Their joy is found in Him. They are to rejoice in God, His presence, His provision, His protection. James Hamilton writes on this, their stronghold is God's joy in saving, restoring, and protecting them. Yahweh's joy is what protects them. And that's what you see here, right? The joy of the Lord is your strength, right? God had taken joy in saving and protecting Him, just as He had always done with His people, and He's done it again, and so they need to rejoice in that. The people, it says, went out to make great rejoicing there in verse 12 because they had understood the Word. When they understood the Word, it says they went and they made great rejoicing because that was the whole point of the teaching. The ultimate aim that day was celebratory joy as they reflected on what God had done and what God was doing and how God rescued them from Egypt many years before and how God had rescued them in the wilderness and how He was still rescuing them today where they were at in Jerusalem. See, God's Word, it's not, it doesn't just, it's not just about breaking us down, it, it heals us. God's Word is filled with good news, right? That brings great joy. The good news we talked about, the, the gospel that we talked about, it, it's here, right? It, it's, it's in here. And God's Word is, is full of the good news of Jesus. And God's Word can and will break us and convict us, but it also heals us. It will bring mourning and it also brings rejoicing. 
And we need to mourn and we need to repent of our sin, but we also must realize that there is a great joy to be found through a relationship with God through Christ, right? Jesus has come to take our sins away. Jesus has come to bear our sin on the cross, to take the punishment for our sin, to be raised from the dead. So we don't just sit around and mourn over our sin all the time. Yes, we mourn when we sin and we repent of it, but we look to Jesus who takes our sin away and that brings joy. It's good news, right? It's good news that we have that we proclaim to people. So we don't just go around beating people up with the Bible. It's bent towards good news. Yeah, there's bad news in there. And you've got to have the bad news so you can get to the good news. But the thrust, the aim of it, is the good news. And we have good news to tell people. So we teach towards joy. And at the end of the day, God's Word is meant for our joy and will bring us joy. See, you need the Word. I need the Word. So we teach the Word. And we teach towards our beats. We teach towards joy. But here's the thing. We can have all this, but if we don't apply the Word, if we don't apply it in our daily lives and in our corporate life, then it's pointless. And that's the second thing I want you to see, and I want to focus on that in verses 13 through 19. We have to apply the Word. We have to apply it. Right? On the second day, you see all the fathers of the houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites in verse 13 came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. So, Verse 12 shows us that understanding the Word through the teaching had come and then they had begun to apply it. We see them in verse 13. They want more. So, this is what happens on the second day of the seventh month. That was the first day of the seventh month. This is the very next day. Remember, this is the month of the Feast of Booths. This is a significant month. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Ezra had been teaching for years, and while there were likely some, like I said earlier, who were catching on, not everybody experienced real revival yet. And something clicked on that day when he read the law. The Spirit of God was working in the hearts of the people, and all of a sudden, we see they want, they want to apply more of the Word. They, they want to know more. They, they like the supplying the Word, right? I was mourning, and now I'm rejoicing. I like how this works. I want to take the Word and apply it to my life. So they, the next day, they get up, and the leaders of the families, right, and, the, and these leaders in the community, they come together. And the first thing you see here, and it's really the process of how application works is they come together and they dig into the Word in verse 13. They come and they get with Ezra and they say, we want to know more. And they begin to study the Word together. And notice it was the heads of the father's houses, the dads and the husbands that took initiative to lead their families to obey God and His Word and the leaders in the community. It starts with us. Applying the Word of God in our families starts with us. And then the heads of the houses, the priests, the Levites come to Ezra and they come to study Because they had realized through the reading the day before, as we had seen their hearts provoked through their mourning, they had realized something just wasn't right. And they needed to dig further into this. They had realized something that that something was broken, right? That that they didn't quite line up with all the practices that were laid out in God's Word. It's kind of like, you know, um, I hate hanging pictures. Because I'm not good at it. I might have mentioned that before. And, And I don't like it because it drives me nuts when a picture is crooked. And so when I, I don't like to hang them at all because then it, they can't be crooked. And so I would just rather look at the blank wall than a wall with a crooked picture. So it drives me nuts. And so, and, but you can hang that picture and it can look straight and it can look great. But they make this little level, right? And you can take it and you can put it up there and it can look straight to you. Then you find out it's really not straight. And then, what do you, and then you learn something. You're crooked. Right? Right? And, and like you're, maybe it's you, right? And, and that's the way it works. And that's the way it works with the Bible. As we, as we hold it up and as we look at it, many times we find out we're the ones that are crooked. It's not it. It's us, many times. As we dig into it, we discover these things. That's how the Word works. And so that's the second step we see here. They discovered, they dug in, but then they discovered old truths in the Word. In verse 14, it says, They found it written. 
And it had been there all along. They weren't finding something new. Right? It had been there all along. Ezra had taken them to a place in the law that was specifically applicable to right now. He had purposely chosen to do that. It was the seventh month. It was a time to celebrate the Feast of the Booths. So that's where he opens up his Bible, right? And if the people were really broken over their sin, as we saw earlier in their mourning over their sin, they should be serious about obeying God. So he says, okay, well, here's how you can get busy obeying, right? And they begin to discover, they, they found it written. They're like, ah, what is this? It seems that even though Ezra had gotten them to practice the Feast of Booths when he first came, and that's over in the book of Ezra, in like chapter 3 or 4, that they had either stopped obeying for a season and stopped or stopped fully obeying and stopped maybe doing it in the spirit in which they should or maybe everybody just hadn't been on board maybe just some people had been practicing maybe it had been several years since then since they had practiced it whatever the reason was they gotten away from it and so it's like they it's like they're discovering something new they they found it written it says and sometimes when we're in the word of god whether it's here together or whether we're alone in our personal quiet time we begin to discover things right and it's always old truth. It's always old truth. It's never something new. It's never like, man, this is... Ne- I'm so glad that I read my Bible today because this is not... But it feels that way, don't it? I mean, we feel like... something. we read, read it and we're like, that, that... Nobody else had to... Does anybody... Does everybody else know this? That's why you feel sometimes, right? And sometimes it can be a verse or a chapter that you've read a hundred times. And all of a sudden, and that's the, the richness of God's Word, but it's always old truth. It's always, always been there lying beneath the surface, but sometimes old truth can feel like new truth. And that's what I feel like is going on with them here in the Old Testament. When, um, when we go home to visit my family, um, back in Alabama, uh, my parents still live there alone, and, and they live in, in you know fairly big house, and there's this whole upstairs level that basically me and my sister used to inhabit that, that they don't really spend a lot of time in anymore. And so I can go there, and I can go to my old room, and a lot of old stuff is still there, right? Toys from when I was a kid that are tucked away somewhere, and they've just not really done anything in that room. It's just a guest room, and the guest is, is me uh, when I come. And so, and I used to have these um, cubby holes that were in my room that, that hung out over the porch, and they were like these doors you'd open, and you'd go in. They weren't air-conditioned or finished or anything. And I remember we, we put the sheetrock up in there, because I was like 10 when we moved into that house, and we and so that was what, 20. Six years ago. And so, we finished that little thing off, and I would go in that little room, and that was like my little clubhouse. And I can go home now, and I can open up that door and look in there, and there are posters hanging in there that I hung 26 years ago. There are things written on there. The friends that I had allowed to go into that space, and the, you know, the ones that would never be allowed or whatever to go into. All that stuff's still on the wall, right? I mean, just crazy stuff written all over the place, posters all over the place. And anytime I go and I open that up and I look at it, it's like I found something that I didn't even know. It's like this, you know, just... It's like, I forgot all about that. You know, memories start coming back. You start looking and you feel like you found something, but I haven't found anything. That's been there untouched for all those years. It's not used for anything but storage now. And that's the way it is sometimes. And we open God's Word, and it can, especially, especially when you open it to something, and then you have these aha moments, and the Spirit of God enlightens your eyes to see something like you never saw it before. And sometimes you never have saw it before. Sometimes it is a new place that you haven't studied before. Or sometimes you've been out of the Word of God for a long time, so it feels that way. And then it's, it's just like, boom, light bulb goes off, and you feel like you've really found something, and you could just sit there and stare at it forever, right? And you just gotta go digging, digging through it like digging through old records. And that's, that's what's happening here. And that's what happens as we dig into the Word. We begin to discover things. And for them, it was the festival of booths. Now, 
Mervyn Brenneman, a commentator, notes that the Feast of Booths had two major meanings. One was the commemorating the ingathering of the harvest. So it was like an agricultural festival. But the other was it was a memorial of Israel's time in the wilderness after the Exodus. And he notes that it seems that they had mostly focused on the agricultural aspects up until this point or for the last several years, and likely they had neglected the wilderness aspects of the feast. And so there seems to be that they're having a deeper understanding of what this festival was supposed to mean. This festival was a celebration of how God had protected them in the wilderness. They were exposed and weak in the wilderness, the Jews had been, but they had survived because God had watched over them and provided for them. And they would, to commemorate this, they would make these huts that they would stay in to remind themselves of the rich history of God's protection over them when they were in a very vulnerable place. When, when they didn't have homes made of brick and mortar. And so it was to remind them how God protected them and how they, and it's a reminder also of how they were just passing through, in a sense. And since they had experienced their own time of God providing for them in difficult circumstances through the rebuilding of the wall and how God had brought them back together and how their living arrangements had not been all that they had dreamed of up until that point and they're still rebuilding homes and they too had experienced God's protection and God's provision. They had had their own wilderness moment. They were experiencing their own exodus. And so it just so happens that God's Word hits them right where they needed it, right? And so this had a special significance for them. I think that's why it prompts such worship and extravagance worship at this point for them and such joy is because it hit them right where they were walking. And God's Word can do that when we dig into it. And what we have to understand as a church and as believers is that we must continually be discovering God's Word. We can't get to a place where we're afraid to say, hey, I haven't been doing that. Or... We, I've been doing that wrong, or we've been doing that wrong. Both individually and corporately, we've got to embrace an attitude of discovery towards God's Word. If we lose that, we'll lose the very attitude that fosters spiritual growth and revitalization. We have to have an attitude of discovery towards God's Word, but then we have to appropriate it. They appropriated the truth that they had read. In verse 16, it says they found it written, but then it says, so the people went out and they begin to... Right. They, 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 they go and they do the things they need to do to have the, the Feast of Booths. They build the booths. They, they, do all, they tell everybody. They get everybody on board. And it's one thing to study and to learn and to discover new and old truth. It's another to appropriate them into your life. And in this case, obedience had to be immediate, immediate or it would be disobedience. Now was the time. They, they couldn't decide and go, well, maybe a month later, maybe two months later, I'll, I'll, I'll make that right. No, no, no. If they're going to obey, it's now. It had to be conducted at a particular time in that particular seventh month. Appropriating this truth meant spreading the word. It meant bringing things to make the booths, building the booths. In other words, it was going to require time, energy, commitment, action. And life change only happens when we make the effort to appropriate the word of God into our life. To do something about it. To not just know it, but to, to do it, to, uh, to practice it in our life. I have golf clubs at home, right? I've, I think I've got some here, right? I've got golf clubs. You know, I use them like two or three times a year. I, 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 I never use them, right? Now, I know what every single one of them is supposed to do. I know within about 10, 5, 10 yards how far I can hit every single club. I never really go use them. I never really go play very much. I just, I just don't do that. Now, my family, I've got family, and they've got golf clubs too. And they know what all their golf clubs will do and how far they can hit all their golf clubs. But there's a big difference in when we, if we ever go play together when I go back home or they come here to visit or something like that. They're a lot better than I am. Because they play all the time and they practice and they watch videos and then they go put the video to practice and they're incorporating all this stuff. I'm a guy that has a lot of knowledge. 
has knows how to do stuff. Not very good at it because I don't. I've never over the years never really put it to practice. They're people that have knowledge and have all that kind of stuff, and they put it to practice. And so they're good golfers, and I'm a hacker. And there's a good 20, 25 strokes difference between us if we go to the golf course a lot of times. And that's the difference. And in the same way, we can be people that, man, we've, we know a lot, right? Some of us have been in church longer than some of us have been alive, right? We can, we can do that. And we can know the Word, and man, we can know, we can have heard Bible study lessons, and we can do all that kind of stuff, but there's a difference in that and putting it to practice. And a mature Christian is not a knowledgeable Christian. A mature Christian is someone who practices the knowledge that they have, that puts it to use. That's spiritual growth. That's wisdom. Wisdom's not knowing. It's applying what you know. And walking in that. And that's what we're called to do as a church, that's what we're called to do as individuals. Do you make adjustments to your life as you read the Word and hear it taught? That's what they're doing. They're, just, they're making radical adjustments. They're like, well, we're planning. Well, we got we to have a festival, right? Now, I think there already some planning had been done because Ezra knew where this thing was going and there were obviously some people that were already on board. But as a group, the people were like, oh my goodness, this, this, we're supposed to be doing something, right? And immediate obedience. They had to make adjustments. Do you make attitude adjustments? Do you forsake sinful habits and make behavioral changes? Do these things happen as you interact with God's Word? Are we getting more knowledgeable or are we getting more godly? And there is a difference. There is a difference. As we discover, we must be ready and willing to act and appropriate God's Word. Healthy Christians and healthy churches adjust as they learn and grow in God's Word. And then they experienced great joy. There's that joy again. Look at verse 17. It says, From the days of Jeshua, that's another name for Joshua, to that day they had not done so. What does that mean? As they, as they do this, they say, well, here's the thing. You find out that they had done this since the days of Joshua. And so is there, is there contradiction here? No, it's not. It's speaking to the spirit in which they've done it. It's like a hyperbolic statement. The idea is that they had never done it in this way, with this spirit. It's a cultural change. Either they had, it's been so long since they've had the people be involved in it in such a way, or with such joy. In other words, man, the, the spirit with which they obeyed this was different than it had been since the days of Joshua. I mean, it's like a, it's a cultural revival that is happening within this community. And it led, it says, to great rejoicing. We see this in verse 12. When they had understood the word, they rejoiced. And now we see here, and they're applying the word to their life, and it says it led to great rejoicing. Because for the believer, obedience brings joy. We love God, we enjoy God, and we're brought joy by doing what God's Word has, tells us to do because we're designed, and life is designed for it to work in accordance with God's Word. When I put toys together for Canon, whether or Eden, whether that be for Christmas, or whether that be for a birthday or whatever, that's not fun. I don't enjoy that. That frustrates me, you know, because I can. There's always a screw missing. There's always something, and and, and some people, you know, you you, that is, you can attack it, and you can just kind of throw the instruction manual out, out of the way when you get the, you know, whether it's uh, furniture from IKEA or toys from uh, Toys R Us, whatever it is, you can throw the instruction manual away. And I don't need that because sometimes they're very hard to read, right, and understand. And you start trying to do it, and then it just turns out wrong. The wheels are in the wrong place, or this is over here, and it's supposed to be over there. The best thing is right when you understand the instructions and you do what the instructions 
say. And in the end, you're happier, the kid's happier because the thing works. I mean, it's all better when it works according to the instruction manual. And I don't want to liken or, or water God's Word down to the point that we think of it like an instruction manual because it's infinitely more than that. But understand something. God has designed life and God is the creator of life and God knows how life is supposed to work. And it is better and it is more enjoyable when it's done in accordance with how He has designed it. And so, yeah, we get frustrated when we don't live life according to God's design. But it brings great joy even in the midst of sorrow, when we do life according to how God has designed. Let me ask you this morning. Do you need to experience a personal renewal? That's what's happening here. I mean, this is just a renewed people. Personal renewal does not happen apart from God's Spirit, God's Word, and you. Three ingredients. Got to have every one of them. You, God's Spirit, God's Word. And God's Spirit's got to move on your heart and the tool He's going to use is God's Word. But if you're not willing to cooperate, nothing's going to happen, right? God's Spirit, God's Word in you. In chapter 9, we're going to see the renewal that begins to take place. It's a renewal of repentance in their relationship with God. And it started with a renewed commitment to God's Word. And see, this renewal, it begins at conversion. When you come to know Christ personally, and He makes you a new creature, the Bible says, but it continues the rest of your life. As Colossians 3, 10 and 12 says, as we put on the new man, which is being renewed, right? Being renewed, it's a daily process. And revival and renewal in the local church doesn't happen apart from God's Spirit at work. God's Word being applied. The people of God responding. Church health and personal spiritual health is directly related to God's Spirit and His Word at work in our lives and how we respond. So if you want to experience personal renewal, it starts with trusting Christ, and then it continues as you adhere to His Word. As a believer, it continues as you grow and renew day by day, not just being taught the Word and reading the Word, but applying it to our lives. Listen to this passage. This is the last one I want to read to you. James chapter 1, verses 22-25. through 25. Very familiar passage, but sometimes we, we skip the latter half of this passage. Be doers of the Word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, where is the blessing? It wasn't in the hearing. It was in the doing. The Bible doesn't just say, be a doer of the Word, not a hearer only. It also says, the blessing is in the doing. The blessing is in the behavior. It's, 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 it's in the appropriating it into our life. It's, it's the one who doesn't just see it and understand it and go, aha, and then walks away from it. But it's the one who begins to do and to act on it. That's where the real blessing happens. The blessing comes in the doing. And it says, you're blessed when you do. We must never forget that we're saved by what's been done by Christ, not by what we do. But we must never water down that what we do after we've trusted in what He's done matters. It matters. And we don't water down Christian obedience. The whole point in exalting the gospel of grace and how we're saved by grace through faith alone is not to water down our responsibility to obey God and His Word. Some people use it that way. 
It's okay. It's both. Yes, I'm saved by grace through faith alone and nothing I can do can ever save me. I'm saved only by the, the blood of Jesus and His resurrection from the dead, the person of Jesus Christ to save me. And at the same time, I have a responsibility now as a child of God to obey God. Not because it saves me, because He's told me to obey Him and He says I'm blessed in my doing. And my trans- I'm transformed by depending on what He's done, what I do is transformed. My behavior is transformed. So, if you want to be built up in Christ individually, if we want to be built up in Christ corporately, we need both the teaching and the applying of the Word of God. We need to be continually devoted to the teaching and the applying of the Word of God in our individual lives and our corporate lives. So here's the thing. Maybe today you need to trust Christ who's revealed in the Word to save you from your sin. Maybe that's where you're at. The Word has a way of touching us wherever we're at. And maybe if that's where you're at, if you're still disconnected from God and need a relationship with God, you need to trust in the gospel of grace that Jesus died, He took your place and rose again, and you need salvation that's only found in Him. Maybe today you need to renew your commitment to God's Word and applying it to your life. Maybe you're a Christian, you've trusted in the gospel of grace, you've trusted in what Christ has done for you, but you're not serious about God's Word. Sometimes we, 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 we do a better job of following a recipe than we do God's Word. We, we're more familiar with statistics and news and articles and what's going on in the world than we are with God's Word. Are we, are we serious about God's Word? Corporately, let us not forget that Christ builds His church and His people through the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. And if we want to experience corporate renewal and continual renewal, it will not come apart from full commitment to the words in this book. It will not happen apart from that. The Word and the good news needs to shape our corporate culture. It needs to be why we do what we do. It needs to be how we do what we do. It needs to be the defining ethic and how we relate to one another. It needs to shape all of that, both individually and corporately. We need to let the Word do its work.